0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets. The latest headlines regarding mink and the novel coronavirus may have slipped under the radar for some news outlets, but for others, it was front-page news. Unfortunately, it's even causing serious concern among experts. Why? Well, it's because over the summer, Dutch authorities announced that mink may have transmitted the novel coronavirus to a worker at a mink farm in the Netherlands. This was believed to be the first concrete evidence of a different species passing the novel coronavirus to a human. Since then, six countries have identified COVID at mink farms, and scientists believe hundreds of people have been infected by mink. Danish authorities are concerned that they have identified 12 people with a cluster 5 mutation of this virus, a mutation that was specifically found in mink. The route of transmission is presumed to be mink to human based on the gene sequences and the fact that the illness in the mink preceded the infection in people. Unfortunately, this disease has caused tragic loss among the mink farms. The disease has been identified in at least 6 companies in 8 different locations in the heart of the mink industry. Experts are currently assessing what needs to be done to stop the spread of the coronavirus at mink farms, and according to recent reports, culling of the mink is now what's being decided. Candidly, the mink industry is controversial to say the least, and many have severe objections to the industry overall. This episode of the podcast is not about those controversies. Although I don't personally wear mink, nor do I have any desire to wear any Clothing sourced from mink, nor do I know anyone who uses any mink products. This episode is not going to take a deep dive into the debates regarding this industry. This episode aims to understand the issues regarding infectious disease, how these precious creatures are cared for and protected by veterinarians, and the urgent One Health zoonotic implications of the novel coronavirus transmission from mink to people. To help me sort this out, I was joined by Dr. John Easley. Dr. Easley is a graduate of Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine, and he has extensive experience in both the dairy and the mink industry. Dr. Easley was an associate veterinarian with Dairy Doctors Veterinary Services, and he has also served as a consulting veterinarian and secretary for the Mink Farmers Research Foundation and coordinator for the Joint Mink Research Committee for the North American Mink Industry. We sought to sort out facts from fiction regarding this latest news, and we got a chance to talk about mink medicine, what it takes to keep these little guys healthy, and just a little bit about the industry itself. It was great to have him on the podcast because it's not very often I get to talk to a mink veterinarian. Welcome to the program, Dr. Easley. I'm so happy to have you.
1: Oh, thank you for the invite.
0: It's very rare that we get a chance to talk to uh, a dairy veterinarian and a mink veterinarian. So Do me a favor. We do something on this program called Set the Scene. Uh, if you could set the scene for us, what it was like for young Dr. Easley growing up that got him started in both dairy, both in the dairy industry, and then eventually into the mink industry.
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah, from an early age for probably like most veterinarians, I was quite interested in animals and kind of tailored my schooling towards that. And uh, when the time came to uh, pick a career, I decided that uh, veterinary medicine would be probably a good a good match for myself. And uh, so, I, living in, in Michigan, uh, Michigan State was the, was the prime source for that type of education. So, uh, that's where I, I ended up going. And I lived out in the, in the country, and, and I worked on dairy farms in the past, and, and I was really interested in production medicine, and uh, I really liked the dairy industry. So, I, I pursued that in my, my career and uh, worked out quite well. I had contacts in Wisconsin and came over here during my, my schooling at Michigan State and rode around with the veterinarians here and uh, really liked this area. Uh, I'm mean, interested in, in fishing and hunting and, and the outdoors also, and uh, there was a lot of, uh, of that opportunity here. So I took advantage of that and uh, started with a four-man dairy practice. We developed it. It's a mixed animal practice, really, but primarily dairy, and uh, developed it into a, a 11-man practice. And I primarily did... Uh, did dairy and and some small animal, and then also worked as center veterinarian for uh, Transworld Genetics and Sexing Technology, which is an international bull stud. So I did a lot of the exporting for the company, and uh, that's how I got introduced to the mink industry. Actually, I had no any, interest or a really experience in the mink industry when I was practicing in the beginning. But this area that I'm in is a very large uh, and highly concentrated mink production area, exactly the highest in the country at one point. Mm. So in the mink industry, the veterinarians that were involved with it at that time, kind of the fathers of the veterinary medicine uh, for the mink industry, were all retiring or, or passing away, basically, uh, right. at this point. So um, so they were in need of, of some assistance. And uh, I just slowly started working with them and found the interest, uh, the animal itself, extremely interesting. Uh, it's got a very unique uh, biology. And then the people involved were... were uh, Really nice and, and uh, interesting group. Uh, it's such a niche little industry compared to the dairy industry. They have to support everything themselves. There's no outside real support for them. Uh, not like the dairy industry, where you have so many of the support industries doing most of the research and doing everything else to support the industry. Um, there was none of that for the mink industry. And uh, there was some local associations that uh, were quite well organized. I was quite impressed the way the large farms. Would help the small farms, even right. though they were competitors they really helped everybody out because you really can't go to school to become a mink farmer. You right. have to learn it by uh, by experience. Um, and uh, the industry is really helping uh, to support uh, new people trying to get involved if, if they want to.
0: Thank you so much. Listen, we wa- I really want to drill down on some of this breaking news, but I do really want to explore a little bit more about what she said, particularly as far as alternate career paths. You know, I want to ask you two questions. One about dairy, the other about the mink industry. As far as the dairy industry, you said you really got interested in dairy. I had an opportunity to work in a dairy unit at University of Delaware, and we were going to the dairy industry twelve hours apart to milk and a whole bunch of other tasks in between. I mean, five o'clock wake ups, five in the in the evening uh, milking time. So you know, it was full speed, a hundred percent of the day, no doubt. One of the hardest. Jobs, one of the hardest days that I've ever put in. was those um, those twelve weeks, sixteen weeks on the dairy unit. What is it about that that the the dairy industry that you love so much? And was it at all off-putting the grueling nature of the industry?
1: Well, you know, as a veterinarian, I'm not directly working on the farms. And and uh, but what you what you alluded to is very true. Uh, people don't realize that the production of dairy products is uh, twice a day, every day. You know. 12 hours, seven days a week. I mean, we had there's bankers. There's no days off. There's no days off. We had bankers come in and st- to look at farms to help support them and, and said, well, you know, that only adds up to 48 hours or, or 60 hours. So, no, we're doing it, you know, seven days a week, not five days a week. It's a commitment. It's a life experience uh, for these people to do. So, and that that's quite impressive. Um, and there's quite a diversity. Same thing with the mink industry. There's very small family farms in the area I'm at. It's extremely strong dairy area. And yeah, there are a lot of small farms, but a lot of big farms. And like, you know, all of agriculture now, the farms are getting larger, more consolidated. So those small family farms is unfortunate. That's probably the last generation for them, this, this go around.
0: Last generation for those family farms. And the mink industry really... That really excited you. Now, the question becomes, once you got into the mink industry. Now, just to be clear, you're not actually a mink farmer yourself. You're tasked with keeping these guys healthy.
1: That is correct. Uh, I just act as a consulting veterinarian for them.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the reality is, just jumping right into these breaking news headlines, there isn't a person on this planet that hasn't been touched by this pandemic. And sad, you know, tragically, it's sickened thousands and unfortunately killed many people. We have seen this novel coronavirus infect many other different species, including ferrets, hamsters, cats, dogs, uh, rhesus macaques. uh, And some of these species are actually starting to show respiratory signs. And so the question I have once I saw this headline was that mink are now showing that they're infected with novel coronavirus to a large degree. That may not have been shocking to some knowing that ferrets particularly are susceptible. But I think what caught a lot of people by attention was the idea that mink could transmit it Back to humans. What's your understanding of this story, and has there been a lot of talk in your industry about these headlines?
1: Well, of course, it's it's the major talk of the industry right now, and primarily, we knew mink were going to be susceptible because uh, we were using mink as a model for the SARS and the MERS research back a few years back. So there was a high sense of that. You know, obviously, this started in China. China produces a tremendous amount of mink. They were very cautious and looking into what could happen. They have not diagnosed any farms in China at this point that I know Interesting. Of. The first ones were in the Netherlands. And yeah, those were uh, two farms relatively close to each other and in a highly in a high area of uh, uh, COVID-19 infection in people. In those two farms, there were employees or owners that were already infected with COVID-19. And then, uh, yeah, then the mink started showing respiratory problems, just a small percentage of them. And they did diagnostic work and determined that, yes, they were positive. The Netherlands is in a unique situation in the way the government is reacting to this. They have already had determined that they were going to ban the farming of mink in the Netherlands by the end of 2023. So keeping that in mind and the extent of the, the infection throughout the farming community, what they had done is is decided that they were going to, once it was determined that these two farms were positive, they would test tested every farm in the Netherlands, which was about 120, 125 farms, 60 animals on each farm, randomly selected, uh, did PCR testing on them, and they found initially another uh, six or seven farms. So that gave us a total of nine. So at that point, they decided that culling would probably be the best avenue for them, uh, knowing that, that they... The farms were going to end in 2023 anyways. So there was a different political approach to it than there is probably going to happen in the rest of the the rest of the world at this point. So at this point, they continue to do testing. Every farm has to submit up to five casualties uh, every week. Those are tested. And then the, so that's their surveillance uh, program. I think they're up to 17 or 18 farms.
0: 18 farms.
1: That is correct. And mm. they're continuing to do this. So it shows that the mink are, and from the studies that they did on, especially on the two farms in the beginning, because they were able to monitor those farms for for an extended period of time compared to the ones now. Once they've established their policy, they're culling them right away. Those farms were in existence for another uh, four to six weeks. So they could watch the progression of the the illness uh, in the mink. And uh, it seems to spread extremely rapidly through a farm and uh, with minimal clinical signs, mostly kind of mimicking what we see in people. There's a lot of asymptomatic carriers. And then knowing what we know from the serological testing and, and the PCR testing of not only the mink, but the environment that the mink are in, mm-hmm. it seems that they clear the virus relatively quickly, within three to four weeks throughout a herd. So that type of information is very important for the rest of the mink industry throughout the world to understand how maybe we can address these uh, these diseases if they do out- break out on other farms. At this point, uh, there's been two farms that have been found to be positive in uh, Denmark. The mink industry is very large in Denmark. In Denmark, they have 1,300, 1,400 farms.
0: 1,400 farms in Denmark. Yeah. Wow, that is tremendous. You know, I wanted to drill down on that because I don't think that a lot of people – understand just how large the mink industry is, either in the Netherlands, in Denmark. And as you said, uh, China outpaces both those countries for mink production. Why do you think that is, that that it's not as, as ostensible and obvious as other production industries like chicken, beef, the, those other industries?
1: Well, it may be that, it, again, it's a niche industry. It's not a food consumable so people aren't directly involved with it. It primarily is a luxury product that's being produced. And in some countries, the fur is used as a, as a normal staple for wearing for warmth. But in the majority of the world, it's primarily a luxury item. So, but it doesn't touch everybody, whereas poultry and meat
0: and dairy does. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. You had emphasized just in discussing the treatment or prevention and mitigation strategies revolving around novel coronavirus that testing was primarily the, the predicate and the focus regarding how to prevent this from spreading throughout the farms. And you had mentioned that testing has now begun, has also been instituted in Denmark as well. The question I have for you is, truly what underscores the human-animal bond and the animal-animal bond is that wasn't testing also performed on stray cats or barnyard cats? Do we know exactly how mink are having the novel coronavirus transmitted between other mink? Has it been mink to mink? Is it human to mink? Is it stray cat to mink? Yeah, primarily
1: we know that the mink have been getting the coronavirus from humans. Uh, That's that's been demonstrated. Certainly mink can get get the coronavirus from other mink. That's been demonstrated as it passes through a farm. There has been cats, dogs, as you've mentioned, that have have been shown positive on farms and in other corona-positive households. Um, We have no evidence at this point that cats can transmit it to mink or that mink can transmit it to cats. Uh, It's just an association that's there now. Most mink farms have very good biosecurity, meaning that the cats do not or if there were any feral cats, they would not go from one farm to the next. They they can't enter the farm because of the perimeter fencing and stuff that that's out there. So right now the primary mode that we know of is human to mink. Um, there has been, as you mentioned before, there was been one, one specific situation that they they think at this point there was a possibility that an employee got infected on previously infected mink farm. They're still working that out hasn't been demonstrated, you know, completely yet at this point.
0: That's specifically something that I really wanted to ask you about in particular is that as of this point, we are still looking for confirmation regarding mink to human transmission. That particular scenario from animal to human transmission of the novel coronavirus hasn't been definitively confirmed.
1: That is correct. And and certainly that research is being done. So our major concern, I think with all the animal species that are susceptible to this, for the human population, is that that we we understand that that we can potentially give them to give the coronavirus to them. So we need to protect the mink or, or your cat or your dog uh, if there is an infected household from infecting that animal. So uh, certainly the the AVMA has come out with policies to uh, address that for for pet owners. The mink industry has done that for their our mink farms. Also, uh, we've recommended all farms the employees wear masks gloves. Uh, Eye shields when possible, uh, uh, washable outer clothing that's dedicated to the farm, decreased chances of of aerosoling the virus around. So pressure washing and things like that are tried not to be done uh, at this time. And then watching very closely, obviously, for clinical signs. Fortunately, at this point, we have the great majority of the world has not seen any transmission. And maybe that's due to the biosecurity that's being put forth on farms at this point. And then the main thing is if anybody feels sick, that they are uh, obligated not to come to work. It'll be compensated, but um, at least that's foreign policy, but try to keep them keep them away. It's the same protocol we've had for influenza. Mink are quite susceptible to influenza. Mink can get influenza from people. So we've had this policy in place for, for uh, quite a few years now.
0: It's so important because we have really tried to reinforce the concept and the mitigation strategy that social distancing or physical distancing includes your pets as well. For those listening who may obviously not have mink as a companion animal, as a as a companion in their home, part of their families, but they do have ferrets. You know, your recommendations for those ferret parents or those ferret owners is similar to your recommendations regarding mink. Is that true?
1: Oh, certainly, and probably even more so because. You're in much more, if it's a pet, a ferret or cat or whatever, usually in a, in a little bit closer contact than you would, an employee, be with the mink. So, um, so yeah, I think you should be taking precautions. And especially if you're a if you're a known positive household, you know, I would highly consider having someone take care of your cat for the next two to three weeks until you can clear yourself of the virus,
0: hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. It is incredible because not only our companion animals and our pets at home a a bolster for our emotional constitution during this quarantine time, but we also still want to have that connection with our friends and family. And so that truly underscores this human-animal bond. One other disease or one other question I wanted to ask you in regards to the human-animal bond is what protections do workers in the mink industry have to undergo when we're not in the middle of a pandemic? I'm specifically referencing Aleutian's disease and any other diseases that mink workers or mink farmers have to make sure that they protect themselves both from getting ill or making mink ill. What protections are in place in the industry for them?
1: Well, I think in any confinement uh, production uh, animal agricultural model, the, it, the protocols are, are pretty much the same in that um, depending on on the disease that you're dealing with, Try to limit the introduction of animals, uh, and those animals need to be tested, quarantined, and then retested again so that you're making sure that you're bringing uh, naive and, and healthy animals in. That's critical. Uh, that's the most common way that, that these animal diseases get spread is between animal to animal. But the other thing is is a lot uh, the same that we talked about before with the coronavirus is that we're trying to, to limit the amount of introduction onto the farm, and so that means um limiting visitors, questioning visitors that come onto farms, giving them disposable coveralls boots to try to mitigate any uh, potential spread there. And then uh, for farm employees and and uh, and owners, they have to basically follow the same scenario, but they're using work dedicated outerwear, and then um, keeping very good perimeter biosecurity in place. Some of the diseases can be wildlife borne, so we want to make sure that we keep the wildlife uh, out. And then uh, also uh, that if, it, if it, there's always a potential that, that if a mink farm would be infected, we wouldn't want to infect any uh, wildlife that would be in the area. So we want to make sure we can contain any potential infection within the farm perimeter.
0: Let's talk a little mink medicine. As a veterinarian and as you previously stated, you're not a mink farmer yourself. You're tasked with keeping these little guys healthy. Uh, a little meek medicine, number one, what is Aleutian's disease for everybody who's listening out there?
1: Uh, Aleutian disease is a parvovirus, uh, and that means that uh, it is also quite resistant in the environment. And it is uh, somewhat of a uh, chronic disease. It's not very acute. So there can be uh, many infected animals showing no clinical signs whatsoever for, for many, many months. Wow. Um, so uh, survey testing is very important if you're moving animals back and forth, but also if you're in an endemic area. I would say probably at least 50% of the world population is Aleutian disease positive now.
0: I'm so sorry. Let's repeat yeah. that one more time. we got to drill down on that. 50% of the world's population, you mean of mink, correct?
1: Of mink. Of yeah.
0: mink are yeah. Aleutian's disease positive.
1: Yes, and that's because it's been in existence and known in, in the mink industry for Oh, probably sixty years now, and uh, so the in the beginning, people didn't understand what it was. So they've slowly selected for mink that are tolerant to the virus. Got it. So, like many diseases that we have, in, and also in animal agriculture, they can be infected with the disease, but it's not causing any clinical signs or pathology to them. So they live with the disease, um, but that does restrict uh, and and is a source. For potential infection to, to naive herds, So there has to be, again, this very good biosecurity so that you can prevent infections.
0: Absolutely. What other types of diseases or vaccine protocols are in place to help protect these mink? As a veterinarian, I'm assuming that there are some things that you see on a daily basis or weekly basis, or you hear about quite often. Are most of the issues that you're dealing with related to husbandry or are there truly medical conditions and diseases that you're seeing on a semi-regular basis?
1: You know, in general, all our our disease entities um, can be somewhat uh, management related, husbandry related. We certainly want to reduce stress exposure at any times uh, that we can do that. The Aleutian disease is is, uh, again a problem in that it's really not, and that's why we can develop these tolerant mink it uh, doesn't cause a lot of pathology to the mink itself. The virus, in most cases, it's the mink's response to the virus that causes a problem. It's it's almost, uh, we might associate it like with an autoimmune type scenario, but really isn't. But for people, it, it may uh, seem like that. It's just the a mink, very
0: robust response.
1: Yeah, the mink produced too many non-neutralizing antibodies, and that causes damage to their own systems. Yes. So, um so, uh, yeah, that becomes a problem. So the other major diseases that, that we vaccinate for are against canine distemper. Again, canine another distemper. reason for having very good biosecurity, because that's prevalent in, the, in our canine populations and also wild populations. Botulism, the mink are extremely sensitive to botulism. And that, that comes into play because of some of the food products that the mink industry uses. And we can get into that a little bit. And then uh, Pseudomonas originosa, uh, which is a bacteria, that that causes pneumonia, severe pneumonia in that, and then also another virus is called mink enteritis virus, which is causes a a diarrhea. Uh, we can also vaccinate against that. So Interesting.
0: we, yeah. Mink themselves have their own specific coronavirus, or is that not true?
1: Yeah, there are coronaviruses that are known in mink, just like calves and and dogs, and uh, causes usually causes or in association with diarrheas that that we see. So.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's something that we've been trying to emphasize is that coronaviruses as a family aren't new to veterinarians and new to people in the medical industry, but this particular novel coronavirus is novel in the fact that it was literally discovered only seven months ago. So, you know, when we were talking about this particular issue, this headline, uh, mink and, and mink medicine and, and their relation to novel coronavirus, there isn't a person in the industry that recommended anybody else. They said, you've got to speak with Dr. Easley. He's the foremost authority in mink medicine. My question to you, and, and this is for people who are listening, who are thinking about alternate career paths. How did you go beyond being a mink veterinarian and actually rise into leadership positions? What was appealing to you in that regard?
1: Well, primarily the interest in the support that the industry gave. And again, uh, I happened to be at the time where the this industry was maturing uh, in relationship to the, to the veterinary care that was being given and the people involved. So it was just an opportunity for me to move in. It was unique compared to the dairy industry that I was involved with. And again, there was a lot of, a lot of need and a lot of production in my area, a lot of very high-level producers. So um, they were very encouraging. And the more I got involved with it, the more interesting it became. Again, they're biologically very unique creatures. And the industry was just very supportive, so yeah, it was uh, it was a nice match for me. It gave me a chance to to try something different, like which is great in our profession of, of veterinarians. There's many different career paths you can follow, and and you can change it anytime. Also,
0: fantastic. You keep mentioning that the mink industry is very interesting. Give us just your I would say your top five, but let's keep it at one. What's your top reason why you find the mink industry so interesting?
1: I think it's because of the people that are involved with it. Okay. Um, you know they're very unique. Again, they have to be resourceful. They have to be self-motivating because they have to do everything themselves. All the research that we do is is done on their expense. They have agreed to put out a pelt assessment. They give a certain amount of money for every pelt they sell towards research it's because they know that that is extremely important, not only to help prevent disease but also to understand how to best manage these animals, meet the expectations of all the stakeholders, the buyers, the consumers, everybody involved with this process.
0: Now, listen, the consumers, let's talk a little bit about them, because no doubt, you know, there are a variety of common animal production industries Like we already alluded to them, chicken, pork, beef. But the mink industry, my assumption is that there is plenty of controversy surrounding that industry. And I'm sure being in the mink industry, as long as you've had, you've heard of a lot of these controversies. What are the most common controversies you hear and what is your response to them? Because not only have you been in the mink industry, but you've also been in other forms of the production industry, animal production industries.
1: And I'm not sure exactly how it all started. It was probably before my time. This industry produces primarily a luxury item. And I think it initially started as that, should we be raising these animals just for a luxury item? And I think that goes back to the broader question of, should humans be using animals in general? I believe as long as we are taking care of them correctly, trying to understand how we can manage them correctly so that they you know they have a good environment to live in we're giving them quality nutrition we're keeping any unknown or unneeded pain or stress out of their lives. plus we are in these confinement animal operations that, that we have we're not raising wild animals you know we've taken those animals from the wild and over many generations, basically domesticated them or designed them through our breeding and our genetics to be able to uh, thrive and, and do quite well in the management systems that we have at this point.
0: And that makes sense in the set in, in what you're saying is in the larger concept of should we be using animals at all in any sort of production sense? And that leads me to ask you, what are the most common misconceptions about the mink industry?
1: Well, I think that that probably that it's an unregulated industry that people uh, don't take good care of the animals or, or don't have good, high quality, state-of-the-art type type management. And that that is very untrue at this point. In fact, the mink industry was one of the first, if not the first, animal agricultural model in the United States to have a herd certification program for welfare. It started back in 1985. So, and that's been continually updated through the time period. And our last update was just last year.
0: The mink industry was one of the first industries, you said, to get a certification for welfare?
1: That is correct. That's correct. And they've developed on that all through the years here. And and not only here in the United States, but in Canada, Europe, there are complementary programs to demonstrate that there are uh, high quality, state of the art management techniques being used. Uh, There's research being done all the time how best to manage these animals and and what they need. We've got third-party certification programs, auditing programs for those welfare certification programs. So that shows that the industry is very dedicated to to being extremely responsible to the needs of the animals and then also the concerns of the public and our consumers in general.
0: Sure. One more question about the industry itself, and this is probably out of your purview. Politics is out of your purview. But if you wouldn't mind opining or give us your opinion about the Netherlands disbanding mink farming at the year 2024, discontinuing all mink farming by 2024, what is behind that? Do you think it's because of some of the controversies you and I just talked about? And what's your opinion about them banning it?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, again, you know, I'm not directly involved with that, so it's really hard to speak to it. Sure. But um, but yeah, I, I think that talk and then the the purpose and and the push to have a ban was motivated by by people that disagreed with that type of uh, farming. And their types of governments allow for, they have coalition governments. So there's small groups that combine to form a government. Well, sometimes there's uh, concessions given back and forth as to you know what they'll allow and, and what they would like to have happen. And, and so uh, the greater group decided that some small smaller groups' agendas were worthwhile to, per- to pursue so that they could become part of the group. That's the way it, it really got in, into play there.
0: I just wanted to delve a little bit into the mink industry because I don't think, number one, I am absolutely learning about it as you're talking and hanging on every word. But I think a lot of other people weren't either aware there was a mink industry or don't know some of the details regarding it. So I appreciate you just explaining and elaborating a little bit on it. But listen, let's jump right back to the mink. You've been around these lovely animals for decades, you know, like Other mustelids in the same family as weasels, badgers, otters, ferrets, martens, wolverines, right? Wolverines are are legendary for their appetite and for how voracious they can be. What are some of the, the characteristics about mink that you so thoroughly enjoy the most, either personality or, as you said, physiologically?
1: Well, I think both. They're interesting creatures both ways. They're inquisitive creatures. They respond uh, to people. Uh, there are some people that, that have tried to keep them for pets, but, but they really haven't been bred for that at all, not like a ferret has been. But one of the unique things is, is their biology. They're on an annual cycle. Their biology is primarily controlled by the amount of sunlight that they perceive. So all the breeding and the reproduction is all centered around that. And then later in the year, their furring process. So they're very unique. They utilize a lot of human food chain byproduct is what's fed to them. So we'll take a lot of things that potentially been, been destined for landfills and be able to uh, utilize them in the mink industry to produce a very high quality, high protein diet
0: that they obviously
1: (gasps) do very well on.
0: Sure. Sorry to interrupt you, but literally it's almost like you read my mind because I was just about to ask you, what do mink eat and is that also related to their susceptibility? To botulism.
1: Yeah. So mink primarily eat, again, human food chain byproduct. And that can be many different components, kind of depending on where you live or where uh, you you are in the country and what type of uh, products are being produced. So anywhere from dairy here, I'm in the Midwest, so um, uh, we actually can feed cheese to mink. And then uh, out on the coast, they feed a lot of fish. Um, If you're near uh, cattle slaughter plants, we use slaughter byproduct, uh, poultry byproduct. So, again, they, it's a very green industry that way in that they can utilize all these things. They use professional nutritionists to balance the diets, uh, analyze the different food components and, and put them together. Uh, it's primarily fed as a, as a wet feed, like a porridge almost that's uh, mixed daily and then fed to the mink uh, multiple times during the day that they can consume.
0: Now, mink are also known to have scent glands, and so everybody, when they think about mink or ferrets, they always want to know the quintessential question, do mink stink? Obviously, that's a pretty crude way to ask that question, but yes, do mink have a particular smell, and when they get nervous, do they also release those scent glands?
1: Yes, they have scent glands, uh, like all the mustelids, uh, mostly, you know, like you you know about the skunks. So, So yeah, there is an odor associated with it. But there's odor associated with with all the different agricultural things. And and it becomes very, yeah, particular, but but also you become very adapted to it. You know, if I am in a mink farm, I I don't smell it, but but I come home and my, my wife says, Oh, you've been on the farms again today right. whereas uh yeah if you're associated with it you don't smell it as much but but sure there's an odor involved at times and majority of the times when you're when you're handling them uh there's no expression of the, of their scent glands at all only if they're been highly stressed or something along
0: those lines. Right, right. I think everybody in the medical industry can associate certain smells with particular aspects of their profession as a small animal veterinarian. I had a particular set of smells that I would encounter every day, but then also going to the dairy unit, beef and sheep, chicken and poultry, those who I was around, they could definitely tell when I had been on the dairy unit. How much of your time is split between both dairy and mink. It is truly a unique combination, the fact that you can do both and that those species, some would think, are completely disconnected or couldn't be farther apart. So the question is, give us a sneak peek into your daily life as both a dairy veterinarian and a mink veterinarian.
1: Well, at this point, I'm only a mink veterinarian. Okay. So I'm later in my career, so I have kind of... uh, Slowed down from the dairy part of it, and turned that over to my uh, other associates. Uh, so now I'm just primarily working in the mink industry. Fantastic. And and that Fantastic. is divided up between working with farms or on farms, and then also working within the industry. Yeah, most of my day is, especially now with with the pandemic. Um, you know is doing this uh we're on the computers and consulting with people that way it's very nice with the technology that we have now we can transmit pictures and documents uh diagnostic work quite quickly and quite accurately so that really helps
0: okay with the two farms that discovered novel coronavirus in denmark and the calling of the of a lot of mink in the netherlands and the banning of mink in the netherlands in 2024 with all of this going on and the situation constantly changing, let's talk about the future. With the two farms in Denmark that were discovered to have novel coronavirus and the culling of mink in the Netherlands and this pandemic that we're all wrestling with, where do you see yourself in the mink industry in the next 10 years and where do you see the industry itself going within the next 10 years?
1: Well, I think the the mink industry is following the rest of animal agriculture and that, that is consolidating we're getting smaller number of farms, but larger farms. They're able to react uh, to the, uh, the economic situations that have developed because of this. In general, the the majority of the fur that's sold and consumed is in China. So that is our major market. And so as China goes, this industry will go. Uh, certainly right now, it's very difficult because of all the uncertainty with the uh, the pandemic now and in in the future. So marketing is, is, is hard to do. So the mink are primarily sold at two major auctions over in Europe. Uh, and at that point, it's very hard now to move buyers in and out of different uh, areas, countries. So the auctions have been basically delayed or postponed. And so that's really put a uh, big crimp in, in the industry. So there's going to be a big reduction in the amount of mink pelts produced over this next few years and we'll just have to see how much demand there is from China in the next few years as to see what farms can survive and and how those uh, farms can, can accommodate that demand. And so thusly then the veterinarians that are associated with the industry, if it does get reduced there'll be less demand for for their services. here in the United States uh, there's only a few of us that work within the mink industry and not only with the industry itself but also with the management within that industry. So I think my my role will stay pretty much the same as it is right now.
0: Okay. Okay. And last question is something I meant to ask you a little bit earlier. But as far as the production side of things, you did mention and we talked about uh, mink being a luxury item and the controversy surrounding that is mink production. Are there any other resources that mink have in the industry or are being used for?
1: Yeah. The mink oil that's produced from the mink fat at uh, at pelting time, that's used for skincare products. The leather industry uses it in their processing, also for weatherproofing things. The carcasses are used for fertilizer, for protein meals. Some areas they use them for crab bait. Uh, So there's multiple ways that the animal is being used other than just its pelt.
0: Okay. Okay. Listen, whether or not those that disagree, obviously with the industry, whether or not that's the case, the reality is they are an integral part of the lives of those people who are in the industry as a veterinarian, you're tasked with just helping to keep these guys healthy. And I think that's vitally important to remember that we need veterinarians like you to make sure that these guys stay healthy and also to help to keep the human population healthy. These latest headlines regarding mink and the novel coronavirus really show that the human-animal bond or the human-animal connection is all around us. It is ubiquitous, and it's something that is very important to consider at all times. And that's what we're all about here on Anything Possible, is understanding that human-animal connection and that human-animal bond. So I deeply want to thank you for your time and helping to share your expertise and your conversation with us. Uh, regarding this. If these developments continue, if more information comes to light, would you mind coming back and doing a round two?
1: I'll be glad to assist
0: wherever I can. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your help. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.